So there was this guy who got hired as a CEO of a big company. And on his first day, he met his predecessor, the guy, the CEO who just got fired. And the outgoing CEO uh, says to him, says, good luck, you know, filling my uh, shoes over here. Listen, if you have a problem that you don't have an answer for, here are three envelopes. And if you can't solve a problem, you open one of these envelopes. He says, okay, fine, no problem. He takes the three envelopes, he puts them away, and he starts running the company. The new CEO starts running the company. And he's doing okay for uh, a few weeks. But after about a month, he, uh, there's a sharp downturn in profits, and uh, shareholders are starting to get upset. So he doesn't know what to do. He opens the first envelope. And inside the first envelope, there's a note that says, blame your predecessor. So he calls a, uh, a meeting and he says, you know, really, we inherited a very weak structure from my, from my predecessor and it's really his fault, but we're rebounding. And he calms everyone down, things settle. A few quarters later and uh, things are not picking up and the heat is on again. So uh, he doesn't know what to do. He opens the second envelope. Opens the second envelope, he looks inside, it says, reorganize. Okay, reorganize. So he fires a bunch of people, he hires a bunch of new hires, he reorganizes. And everyone calms down, and things are good for a few more quarters. And uh, then finally, there's a downturn, he doesn't know what to do, he has no other ideas. What, what can he do? He's got no choice, he goes back to the envelopes, he's got one more envelope, he opens the third envelope, opens up the third envelope, there's a note on it that says, prepare three envelopes. Okay. <laughs> We're going to talk about leadership. We're going to talk about responsibility. In this week's Parsha, Parsha's Akif, we read about Meisha um, Rabbeinu speaking to the Jewish people. The whole Sefer Dvarim is Meisha speaking to the Jewish people at the end of the 40 years and uh, a lot of, it's called Mishnah Torah, the repetition or the doubling of the Torah because Moshe is repeating a lot of the events that uh, occurred during the 40 years. So one of the things Moshe says is, V'yemer Hashem Eli, he's recounting, Hashem said to me, this is talking about the time, well, you'll tell me when it was. Hashem said to me, Moshe is recounting, Kum! Raid, maher Get up, go down, hurry from here. Kishiches amcha, because your nation has become very good. Cheta ego, sin of the golden calf, because your nation has become corrupted. Get out of here, go down, go down from the mountain. So Moshe was on Har Sinai receiving the Torah. And meanwhile, there was the sin of the golden calf. So Hashem says, get up, get out of here, go down, hurry out of here. Now it's interesting, the term raid, go down, doesn't just mean descend spatially, in spatial terms, from the mountain, but it actually also means in status. As we said, this story is not the first time this narrative is being recounted. It's actually 
this happened in Sefer Shmois. So we get a little bit more insight from the way it's written over there. In Sefer Shmois, it says, Yedabar Hashem el Mesha, Hashem spoke to Mesha, now speaking in the third person. In, in, in Vodim, Mesha is speaking in the first person, saying, What happened? Hashem spoke to me. In Shmois, it's speaking the third person. Hashem spoke to Mesha and told him, Lach raid, go down, descend, that same word there, Kishiches Amcha, because your nation has become corrupted. All right. Now, there in Sefer Shmois, Rashi fills in a little bit more because it's the first time it's coming up. Sometimes if it's, if it's repetitious, Rashi won't. Rashi relies on the fact that we, we learned it already. So over here in Parshasekev, it doesn't explain what that descent is really talking about. But back there um, in Sefer Shmois, it does. And, and Rashi says that lech reid, go down, means migduloscha from your greatness, from your high position. And this is actually what Rashi says in his commentary is based on a Gemara in Brochus, Daf Lamed Beis Hamed Aleph. The Gemara says, Hashem spoke to Meshach and says, Go down. My, the Gemara, the Gemara asks, My Lech Reid, what is this expression, Go down, descend? Amr Rebbe says, at that time, Hashem was saying to Mesha, in effect, this is what these words meant. Mesha, raid migduloscha, go down from your greatness. Klum nesati Israel. I only gave you greatness because of them. Now the Jews are sinning. Atolomali, what do I need you for? I'm going to ask a question. Simple question. At the time when the Jewish people were sinning at the Golden Calf, clearly Moshe was not there. Hence, hence, Hashem is telling him not just go down from your status, but get down there because he wasn't there. So here's the question, very simple question. If Moshe was not present, so not only he was not involved in anything that was any of the wrongdoing, but he didn't even have the ability to protest. You know, there's a concept of that a person has the ability to protest against wrongdoing, and if he has the ability to, and he doesn't do it, then he's complicit. But in this case... Moshe wasn't there. He was up on Har Sinai. He was receiving the Torah. Why does Moshe have to suffer? Why does Moshe have to descend in his spiritual status because of something that not only he wasn't involved in, but he didn't even witness? Okay, I'm just going to float the question out there. No, I'm just floating it out there. I'm going to tell you a story. Stories like this. Then we'll come back to the question. The Baal Shem Tev used to daven at length. And one Friday night, the Baal Shem Tev was davening. And what they usually would do Friday night is the Talmidim, when they finished davening, whenever it was, 
they would stand around the Baal Shem Tov, like in a circle, and they would let the Baal Shem Tov daven as long as he wanted. And then after the Baal Shem Tov finished davening, which was a considerable amount of time, everyone would leave shul Friday night, and they would go home and make Kiddush. One Friday night, for whatever reason, the Talmidim, it occurred to them, you know, it's Friday night, <laughs> we're hungry, our families uh, are waiting, maybe the kids are, are tired. Here's what we can do. We can all sneak off and go home. We make Kiddush, have a bite, right, and come back. We can come, and we'll be back long before the Baal Shem Tov is normally finished. And they figured how, uh, you know, they, they made a whole plan in their heads, how long they had to go and how, 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 how quickly they'd have to be back. So they agreed on this. And they, one by one, they dispersed to their homes, and they made quick kiddush, and they had a bite to eat, and then they hurried back to shul long before the time when the Baal Shem Tov would be finished davening. And they got back to shul, and the Baal Shem Tov was done. It was finished. Finished davening. So they were very confused. And the Baal Shem Tov saw their confusion and said, I want to tell you a parable. Once upon a time, there was a group of men traveling through a forest. And the leader of the group said that in that tree, high in that tree, there's a beautiful bird. Now, no one else could see the bird or even hear the bird. But the leader said, it's there. There's a bird up there. And in fact, if I can get up to the top of the tree, I can take the bird and bring it down, and we can all marvel at its beauty, its beauty of song, the beauty of its plumage. And, uh, but I just need to get up there and, and, and get the bird. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to make a human ladder. Everyone stand on each other's shoulders, and I'll go to the top, and I'll get the bird and I'll bring it down. So they agreed this is what they're going to do. So they all, like, like an acrobat act, each one standing on the shoulders of the next, and the leader stood on the top, and he captured the bird, and as he captured the bird, the guys who were forming the human ladder got bored, and they said, you know what? <laughs> we're going to go take a lunch break right now. And they walked off, and of course, what happened? The guy in the top of the ladder <laughs> collapsed. So the Baal Shem Tov said like this, when we are together, when we are as a group, I am able to ascend in heaven, and I'm able to bring down blessings from on high because of your support. You are the human ladder. But when you guys went off, you went to your homes, you each dispersed to your own home, and you sort of broke the, the group dynamic, then I can no longer climb to the heights that I'm accustomed to, to climb to. And at that point, my davening was over. So if you would have stayed, then I could have continued climbing. But if, when you leave, then... That's it, my davening is done. It's important, it's very important 
that we understand that the relationship between the Jewish people and Moshe Rabbeinu and what the Zohar calls Ispashtusa de Moshe, the extension of Moshe or the Moshe-like figure in each generation <coughs> is a symbiosis. And even more than a symbiosis, where you have two parties which are mutually benefiting from each other, it's actually deeper than that. It is a, uh, on a deeper level, it's one entity, it's one being, to the extent that, and we're not talking about a regular Rav and Talmud relationship. We're not talking about a regular teacher-student relationship. We're talking specifically about a Moshe Rabbeinu, or Ispashtusa de Moshe, a Moshe-like figure. The relationship between Moshe and the people is so much, uh, it, not just a symbiosis where they, they mutually benefit each other, but they're, they're so intrinsically linked with each other as if they're one entity that the, the nature of this relationship is actually best metaphorically conveyed as a single, a single organism, think, picture, a human being, who possesses many limbs. And although there are many limbs, many diverse limbs in the body, they're all of one body. They're all of one essence. Think about a, a, a human being where if you would take a cell from the toenail or from, from the tongue, it's the same DNA, right? It's one entity, it's one organism, it's one living being. And the difference between Moshe and the people is not like the difference between one person and a second person, but really within one person, it's like the difference between different body parts. And specifically, if you're talking about Moshe and the people, it's the difference between the head and the feet. The head and the feet are two extremities. The head is the highest, not just spatially that it's located at the top of the body, but the head it, it runs the, 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 the central nervous system and it's, it's guiding and directing all of the different limbs. And the feet obviously are the lowest, not just again that they're the, the lowest spatially speaking, but the feet have the least amount of sophistication as far as their function. What is there are different organs of the body that perform different tasks, you know, like uh, the lungs bring, bring in air and the heart pumps blood and the, the, the kidneys refine the blood and all these things. But what, what if it, hands even, you know, they, they're not organs, but hands can, you know, can draw a picture. You can, you know, if you're an artisan, you can, you can make, make art with your hands. Um, if you speak, if you're Jewish, <laughs> use your hands, right? The feet, what do feet do? Feet really only... Um, feet are, you know, they call it gross motor, meaning it's, it's just the most, um, the, the, all, the, the only thing a foot can do is to bring you, unless you're that guy, uh, what was it, the my left foot guy, but, <laughs> but really all a foot can do is, it's called it has the ability to bring the person from one, to transport the person, to bring him from one location to another. So it has the most simple, most basic function. So you have the brain, which is the most edel, the most refined, the most sophisticated. You have the feet, which are the most basic. All it can do is move the body from one place to another. And yet, they're the brain and the feet of one organism. And this metaphor of brain and feet actually is biblical. 
It's actually biblical, and it's spoken by none other than Moshe Rabbeinu when he's speaking about his relationship with the Jewish people. There's a, there's a posuk in Sefer Bar Midbar, Parshas Bar Leischa, Vayemir Moshe. Moshe said, Sheish me'ois elif ragli ha'om, 600,000 feet of the people, asher anechi bekirbei, which I am in the midst of. So the people are referred to as ragli ha'am, the feet. The nation is called the feet. And Moshe's relationship with them is like a head that guides the feet. In fact, the word Rebbe, Resh Beis Yud, is a Roshetev, is an acronym, Rosh Bnei Yisrael, the head of the children of Israel. And Chassidus points out that Anoichi, the word Anoichi, as opposed to the pronoun uh, Ani, which also means I, but Anoichi is like Anoichi Hashem Aleichecha, Asher Tzisichem Eretz Mitzrayim. It's the first of the Ten Commandments when God spoke at the at the at Sinai. So Anoichi actually is a byword for God, and not just. Uh, any level of godly revelation, you know, there are different shemois that refer to different revel- levels of revelation, but anoichi is the highest level, the essence of Hashem, because it can't even be described by a name. So it's that pronoun which defies categorization because it can't be called by uh, any, of w- any one of the shemois. The different divine names are descriptive, and in that sense, they sort of describe one type of revelation. But anoichi means the essence of God, whoever God is, Without, without having to take any particular form in, 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 in Revelation. So, Siddhis explains that because of the re- relationship between the Ragliyam, the people, then there's Anoichi Bekirbai. There's this essential level of God present within the people. In other words, it's not enough that Meisha Rabbeinu is Meisha Kibbal Teira Messinai, like it says in Pirkei Yaves, and that Meisha learned Teira Mipiyak Vore, he learned Teira directly from Hashem, and he taught it to the Jewish people. That's all well and good. That's Meisha as a teacher. But then, there is the relationship between Meisha and the people that's like the head and the feet, where in order to, ha- in order to have the Anoichi, in order to have the essence of God, present within the Jewish people, there has to be an intact relationship between Moshe and the masses, which means that without Moshe, without the brain, the feet don't have any purpose. They have nowhere, they have no direction. They, they have movement, but they have nowhere to go. No reason to go there. But conversely, conversely, without the feet, the brain has vision. The brain has an agenda. The brain has this goal, but it can't actually get there. It can only imagine it. It needs the feet to actually bring it there. So there's this relationship between Moshe and the Moshe-like figure in every generation, 
with the masses that is very much like the mind and the feet of one single organism. That on one hand, we need Moshe to guide us, to tell us the agenda, give us the marching orders, literally the feet need marching orders. But at the same time, Moshe needs the people. Moshe needs the people because without the people, he can't, the, the, the brain can't accomplish anything. I'll tell you a story. I don't know who will get this really. This is, I tell this story a lot because I like it, but it's one of those stories that I like. You know what, I, just a little personal, um, just gonna share with you on a personal level. I don't like the kinds of stories most people like. You know, you've heard me complain about this before with the Hollywood endings. You know, the Americans all like the Hollywood endings. They all like, you know, they all lived happily ever after. Okay. And not only do I not like those stories, but the stories that I like tend to be very underwhelming because nothing happened. There was no potters. No one got thrown in a dungeon. It was just a bunch of people. One guy said this and the other guy said that. And then there was some type of subtle insight that you're supposed to glean from the dialogue. Anyway, so this is a typical story like this. Just... Don't get too excited. All right, so here's the start. I was speaking in Sydney, Australia. It was a number of years ago. Actually, it was Gimel Tamos. I think Gimel Tamos was on a Shabbos. Gimel Tamos, the Rebbe's Yorzeit. And um, so I was speaking in Sydney, Australia. A guy comes over to me, and he says to me, tells me his name. And based on his last name, he thought I would react. But I wasn't, it wasn't clicking for me. It wasn't ringing a bell. So he, he points out to me, he saw that I wasn't registering. He was like, my great uncle was Gershon Shalom. Everyone knows who Gershon Shalom was? Gershon Shalom was the professor of Kabbalah at Hebrew University. Gershon Shalom was a Yekka, a German Jew. At least publicly, outwardly, officially, he was not a big believer. He was not so religious, to put it mildly. He studied, you know, like biblical criticism, how they studied the Bible as an academic subject devoid of any kedusha. So he was the one who innovated the study of Kabbalah, specifically of Zohar, as, a, as an academic study, devoid of any reverence or kedusha whatsoever. So, um, in fact, I'll tell you a story within a story. <laughs> this, actually, I heard from, from Joseph Telushkin, who heard it from Herbert Weiner, who wrote Nine and a Half Mystics. Herbert Weiner, when he was a college student at Hebrew University, he took Gershon Shalom's Kabbalistic Studies class. And in the middle of the class, there was this chassid named Avram Yehuda Chain. He was the son of Radatz Chein, Rabdavid Tzvi or Herschel Chernogover, who was a mashpia. I think he was a chassid going back to the times of the Tzemech Tzadik. Besef Yamav, at the end of his life, he lived in Eretz Yisrael. Anyways, he had a son of Rom Yehuda. So anyways, here are the, these are the characters. Avram Yehuda Chein, this Lubavitcher sort of like uh, troublemaker, rolls into the Hebrew University class of Gershon Shalom, teaching like Kabbalistic studies. And Herbert Weiner from Nine and a Half Mystics is... A student. Anyways, this is not even the story that I wanted to tell you. But Avram Yehudachin starts harassing Gershon Shalom and he says to him, No, what's the difference between a chassid and a Kabbalistic studies professor? 
I don't know, what's the difference between a chassid and a Kabbalistic studies professor? So he says, it's the difference between the balabas and the accountant. A business owner and his, and his bookkeeper. What, what's the difference? The accountant, the bookkeeper, his whole day he's immersed in numbers. And every one of those numbers re represents a dollar, a penny, and he knows exactly how much to the penny came in today, how much to the penny went out today. He, this is what he lives with. At the end of the day, though, he closes the books, he goes home, and he doesn't have that money. It's not his money. He, he can track it all. He can tell you exactly to the penny what came in, what went out, but it's not his money. He doesn't have the money. The business owner, the balabas, he doesn't know exactly to the penny what went in today, what went out today. Maybe once a month he gets a general concept of it, but it's his money. It belongs to him. So he says, he says the Kabbalistic studies professor, he's like the accountant. He's Bucky Osbos. He knows every single word, every single letter of Zayar. But he doesn't make it his own. He doesn't live according to it. So it's not his money. The chassid, what does he know from Zayar? You know, you know, you know, maybe the first few, you know, it's Kigavna because it's in the Siddur. He knows a few things, right? But it's his. it's his. He owns it. He's like the business owner. Anytime he needs to spend that money, he could spend it because he makes the Kabbalah his life. He lives according to Kabbalah. Okay. Anyways, that's not the story I wanted to tell you. So this guy in Sydney, David Shalom, he tells me this story. He says, he, after the Yom Kippur War, he starts hanging around Lubavitch in Melbourne, just taking some classes. And his father, a good Yakke, a good German Jew, starts freaking out. Oh no, you fell in with these chassidim. They're going to brainwash you. They're going to make you a radical. So he said, they sent me to my great uncle, the family intellectual, Gershon Shalom, to deprogram me. Yeah. So he says, I went to Yerushalayim, I went to Iratika, to the old city, to my great uncle's apartment, and we're sitting and we're talking, and he's like, sort of, he says, he was very, like, cold, very intellectual, and he said the, the whole conversation was in German, because German is the language of academics. If you're speaking intelligently, you speak in German. And he's grilling me, and I realize as he's grilling me, he's trying to decide whether or not I'm even worth saving. Because if, if I'm not intelligent, then whatever, who cares, you know, well, let, let him do whatever he wants to do. So he's trying to determine, first of all, if I'm smart enough to be worth saving. So he's asking, asking me questions, and I'm answering, and, and I could tell that he feels that the, my answers are good enough that, you know, it's, it's worth it for him to continue talking to me. So at, at one point in the conversation, he says to me, and I realize that this is like the the ultimate test. He's, if, if I don't answer this question right, then he's giving up on me. So he says to me, do you even know the secret of Lubavitch? He says, you're, you're hanging around Lubavitch. You're so enamored with them. Do you even know the secret? By the way, and I should tell you, he told me, he says, I didn't become a Lubavitcher then. I'm not a Lubavitcher now. My, my father was just freaking out. <laughs> he's like, I didn't become a Lubavitcher, but I was hanging around them. That was scary enough, right? So he says, his great uncle, Gershon Shalom, the professor of Kabbalistic studies from Hebrew University, he says to him, he says, do you, do you even know the secret of Lubavitch? He said, I thought a second. I knew it was an important question. And I said, yes. Uh, they have a general. They have a general. So I, I stopped him in the middle of him telling me the story. I said, that's, that's remarkable that you felt that that was what was unique about Lubavitch. Like, how did that, why did that strike you? 
he says, well, you know, I studied history in college and I see things in terms of nations and history. And to me, that, that was clear that, that this, this model of leadership, you know, the Rebbe's power and, and, and the ability to, you know, to, to, to mobilize and to, to send shluchim. And so I said, yeah, they, they, they have a general. And I saw it in, in, in you know, like military terms, not, not just a king, a general. Somebody could, you know, order the troops. They have a general. So he says, he sort of smiled as if to like, give me somewhat, you know, semi-approval. But he couldn't let it be right. Couldn't let it be the ultimate answer. And he says, no. Like, almost, but not quite. He says, no. He has an army. So I ask you, what's the secret of Lubavitch? You say they have a general. No, not they have a general. He, meaning the Rebbe, has an army. Now, you say whatever you want about Gershon Shalom, but I've thought about this story so many times. There are a lot of people who claim to be leaders. Show me your army. Show me one person who will devote their life to your marching orders. So to say they have a general, yeah, that's good. But really, what's much more impressive than the fact that the Rebbe was a general is that the Chassidim conduct themselves as an army who follow the orders of the general. So, anyways, Meisha Rabbeinu is Pashtusa de Meisha. It's not a one-way street. It's not a one-way relationship. It's not just that the people have a Moshe, that the feet have a head. It's just as much, every bit just as much, that Moshe has the people, that the head has the feet. That when there's this visionary, like the Baal Shem Tov told his Talmidim in the parable, there was the person who could see the bird and hear the song. They couldn't see and hear the bird. He could see and hear the bird. Okay, so he's the visionary, he's the tzaddik, he's the one who sees what they don't see and hears what they don't hear. He's, he, he, he's, he's the, 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 the eyes and the ears. The chachamim are called Eine called, are called the eyes of the community. Okay, and yet, without them forming the human ladder to stand on top of, he can't go get the bird. You know, you, you talk about the Rebbe from day one, from the Rebbe's inaugural for bring, and he said, we're going to bring Mashiach. So the Rebbe was the one who had the vision, who was able to say, not just we're going to somehow come back from the, 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 the unfathomable loss from what, you know, what, what the Jewish people had suffered in that time. Not only we're we going to come back, we're going to somehow rebuild. No, no, no. We're going we're to actually finish the job that all of history has been adding up to. We're going to bring Mashiach. We're going to bring the Shechina back to this world. So it was clearly the Rebbe's vision. But it's not enough to have the visionary that Rebbe said, I need each and every one of you to do the work. What does it mean to do the work? Each one of us in their own way. Each one of us in their own sphere of influence, starting in your home to influence your family, but also in your community to everyone that you meet. And, and wherever you do business, people that you interact with, each one of us has a sphere of influence. Each one of us has to take responsibility. And, and to follow the marching orders. So it's not enough that there's a visionary 
who sees what's possible. The visionary who sees what's possible cannot accomplish one bit of his vision without the rank and file regular simple Jews like us. So, to answer our question from the Parsha, what does it mean? The Gemara and Bracha says that at the time of the sin of the golden calf, Hashem is telling Moshe, Lech Reid, go down. Reid Migdulascha, go down from your greatness. Or like the Gemara, so the Lashon of the Gemara, Reid Migdulascha, Klum Nesati Lachog Dula Alabishvil Yisrael. The only reason I gave you greatness was for them. What does it mean? It means. It's not just, you're the smart guy, you're the charismatic guy, so therefore you get to be the leader. You know, Lahavdo, like in, in politics. So you get a guy who's, who's telegenic, he looks good on camera, and he knows how to read from a teleprompter, and he's got, he, he, does, he networks well, so he's got good connections, and he's the leader. No, no, no. No. A leader, a true leader, a Moshe-like leader, in Yiddishkeit means somebody whose entire greatness comes from the fact that he is the head which guides the feet and that conversely the people are the feet which carry out his vision. It's not that he won some contest and he gets to be the one in charge. What do you think, the, the, like the brain won some contest? They had a contest between all of the Avodim and now it got to be the, the brain. The brain is the brain because the brain is the brain. It's intrinsically different. It's inherently different than, than the other limbs. But a brain in a jar, a proverbial brain in a jar, is, is for all intents and purposes not a brain. Because that's not what the purpose of a brain is. So a Moshe without a nation, what's the purpose of a Moshe without a nation? This is what Hashem says. Your nation became corrupted. Now, you want to tell me you're going to get down there and save them and redeem them and, and, and fix this situation? Then, then I'll reinstate you because now there's a purpose for you. And that's exactly what transpired. Right after this, Moshe realizes he better get down there and save the people and sort things out. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a people, well, you're, then you're a brain in a jar. What function do you serve? So a Moshe Rabbeinu without a people... Is a, it, it's like the sound of one hand clapping. Doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't accomplish anything. So anyways, bottom line, we try to make everything practical. We have to remember like this. We are the foot soldiers. Literally, foot soldiers. But Moshe Rabbeinu and the Ispashtusa de Moshe and every Moshe-like leader throughout the generations, all of these visionaries from Moshe Rabbeinu on down, are relying on us to implement their vision in our daily lives and to finish the job in the Mashiach.